Well, good evening and welcome to the fourth episode of Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree. Um, and uh, I'll say welcome, David Scott, to the program once again. I'm delighted to be back. Okay, so the last program we finished with a number of questions all about build, build, build and Boris's claims that that's what he's going to do. And the questions that you asked at the end of the last program, David, were how do you know what to build? How do you know how much of it to build? How are you going to pay for it? What's the trade-off that comes from paying for it? And you made the point that money has to, the money has to come from somewhere to pay for it. And you also asked how do we evaluate the harm that we're doing versus the good that we're doing by building infrastructure in this way. And I think where I wanted to start was Africa, because uh, as you know, over the last several years, China has become very, very interested in Africa, and they have been encouraging African countries to get involved in the Belt and Road Initiative. And what it's possible to see there is, obviously, Belt and Road is all about moving goods from one place to another. We can have a discussion, I suppose, about the, the debt implications of it at, a, at another time. But, but I want to focus on this at this point on this issue of how do you know what to build? How do you know how much of it to build? The first thing that they've done is that they've built ports, or at least developed the ports, and they've built roads and they've built railways. Um, and one of the things that has fascinated me over the last couple of years is that along some of these main corridors, that these have become incubators for other businesses, in some cases, some relatively high-tech businesses as well. Um, and so one of the things that has interested me about this, this idea of infrastructure building is this notion that, that by building infrastructure, it enables or it, it drives other enterprise. And I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on, on where the risks are in that. Um, because, because it seems to me that if you look at some of, some of the, the stuff that's been done in Africa by China, it, it seems to have been extremely beneficial to communities. Well, some of it will be, but, but why is China doing it? China's doing it because China sees it's in its own interests, because it's looking to get resources for its own economic purposes. So it's, uh, it's very much in China's interest. Now, it may well be in Africa's, but you've got a whole lot of questions to answer before we're quite ready to, 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 to give them that. Before there was a Chinese dash for Africa, obviously all the European countries were at it with greater and lesser success. So you got one end, you had the British Empire, and at the other end, you had the Belgian Empire, which was actually driving a huge country into penury and halving its population. There was a British plan to, to put a railway from Cape Town to Cairo, and uh, it almost came off. The Germans got in there and had a couple of colonies in the way. And it didn't go through because of that. But that was a, a plan to link the whole of Africa via a railway. And had that come off at that point, you, said, you would have said, yes, there would have been for, for sure some economic benefit and economic benefit to the Africans. But again, who was it for? Who was making the calculation? And, and was it a wise expenditure of resources at that time? Because it was done for great game reasons as much as anything. And I think a lot of the Chinese invest investment is being generated by exactly the same sort of geopolitical considerations. So you you get back to what we talked about value a couple of sessions ago and, and value being on a hierarchy. And if you have a particular good, the first element of that good goes towards the most pressing want. And, and, the, and the next element 
goes to the next most pressing. So the, the more you have of something, the less value you apply to each marginal unit. And that applies personally. It also applies to things like infrastructure spending. You put one bridge across a river and you might save a 50-mile detour for quite a lot of people. You put a second bridge across, you might save five minutes with a bit less congestion. It's diminishing returns all the time. The actual value you're adding is less and less. So you're, how do you know where to stop is one reason. Um, what do you build is one of the questions you went through there. I mean, that's, a, that's a very good one because we've got, um, when we had canals and railways in this country as the, as the main means of mass transport, it was all privately owned and operated, so I had to make a it had to make uh, a living in the marketplace. So there was a di- there was direct feedback there as to whether that was actually wanted. There was some means of economic calculation. There was some means of saying yes, this is a going concern. That that may be true, but that calculation always comes after the fact. Of course, somebody had to take a punt. Well, it come it's verified after the fact. The calculation comes before the fact. Whether you whether you make money oh, or not. Hold on, hold on. Whether it's whether it's people in the eighteenth century building railways in Britain or whether it's the Chinese in the twenty first century building railways in Africa, somebody makes a decision that that there is a benefit to doing that and they're expecting a return from that. And that return is only actually proven once the thing has been built and is running for a while. But there must be a process that takes place in order to get to the point of making the decision in the first place. Yes, and the process is economic calculation. Now, the, the, uh, one, of the, one of the great contributions of Ludwig von Mises, back as early as 1920, he wrote a paper on the impossibility of economic calculation in the socialist commonwealth. And that still holds as one of the two main uh, planks that argue that, that, that socialism not only doesn't work, but cannot work. Uh, because he was pointing out that if there's no um, price discovery mechanism, if there's no profit and loss mechanism, if there's no private property, you can have no economic calculation. Now, we live in what's termed a mixed economy. We're somewhere between socialism and, and capitalism, somewhere between free markets and government owning everything. And it's a bit uncertain how much economic, genuine economic calculation goes on. You're build, you've, if you're choosing between a road and a railway, say, how's that calculation done these days? Well, it's done by government for governmental reasons and for often very political reasons. And there's a lot of lobbying goes on. There's a lot of political pressure. It's not done on pure economic calculation or really on very much of any economic calculation, although there is an estimate of costs made. The, the point that's missing is, is the estimate of return. Right? What is the return on this? Government are not really looking necessarily at, at a return the way a private investor would be because government have got a monopoly of force and can, can extract money by taxation. So if they're looking at anything, they're looking at a growing tax base because of it. But are they even looking at that? How do they make these, how do they make these decisions? It's very clear in a, in, a, in a free market system how you would do it. And if you get it wrong, the people who get it wrong lose their money and the devalued assets are, of a failed business are, are bought up cheap by someone else who tries to make it work on that basis. That's the, the, the way it's controlled. And people who are successful in making these predictions are rewarded and tend to make more predictions and, and build businesses. 
that's kind of how it works. So there's a feedback system that's understandable. When you put the state in, even if it's only partially in, the means of calculating return really go. So you're talking about having something else making the decision. So what is the, what is the something else? I would argue that what it is is politics. So whether it's the British Empire trying to tie Cairo to Cape Town with a single railway line, in order to secure the empire's control and influence the length of Africa, which was a geopolitical exercise, or the Chinese looking to control uh, and dominate the supply of raw materials from Africa, which is a geopolitical exercise, that's the basis on which the decisions are made. Now, does that, does that help the Africans? Maybe. Maybe not. It's not done to help the Africans. No, I think I think that's right. It's not done to help the Africans. But I think if we are going to take what the Chinese have been saying at face value, they're at least doing it in a slightly different way in the sense that, uh, uh, and, and setting aside what happened in the 19th century, if we just look at what happened in the 20th century with World Bank IMF efforts, uh, the Chinese are, are not taking that approach. And they seem to be they seem to be on the face of it, taking the, the view that the best way, at least at this point in time, the best way to proceed is that the carrot is the better option. So they're attempting to, to encourage African economies to develop because, of course, that helps them in, in the long run because it produces new markets. One of the things that's helped the African economy most of all has been the advent of the mobile phone because you've got communication and also you've got a, a secure means of payment. And one of the biggest problems with the African economy has been banditry and being able to actually have resources that, that don't, get, don't get nicked. You know, and this comes down to property rights being the core of it all. If you don't have property rights, you don't have an economy, sooner or later, usually sooner. So one of the big problems with Africa was if, you, if you're going to go along and someone's going to buy something from you and give you a bag of coins, are you still alive and well and enjoying the free air when you get home with your bag of coins or someone hit you over the head and stole them? Whereas with a mobile phone you're able to make a transaction electronically, which is secure, and you can get at it, but no one else can. And this, was a ma- this has been a major, major success. And Africa has been able to miss out on a whole level, a whole, a whole layer of very expensive and now obsolete infrastructure investment with hardwired telephone lines everywhere. Are you arguing for a cashless society and 5G? I'm arguing for using the technology and allowing the technology to overcome problems that are otherwise going to be insurmountable. And I'm also arguing for, for small being quite beautiful. A lot of the technological advancements that we had in the 19th century depended on huge scale. Right? And this is where a lot of the government involvement came in, because how do you, how do you generate electricity? Well, you need a big integrated coal mine throwing coal straight into a coal-fired power station, which is enormous, and a, and a whole lot of a distribution network. So the, the, there is a vast investment there, although the, the early days of electricity generation and supply were, were private sector. The government got involved and said, it's too, it's too big for the private sector. You know, we, we need to do this. So it became a state organization. Now, the way the technology's got, it makes small-scale local generation much more viable. 
So you don't need the huge distribution system. And this applies in the whole range of areas. What kind of small-scale generation are you thinking about there? I, I don't mind. Right, You pick one. You, whether, it's, whether it's a wood chip or diesel or um, solar or wind or a combination of all of these, they're all becoming affordable on a small scale. And nuclear, actually, might well. There's some interesting suggestions that actually micro-nuclear, which I think Rolls-Royce is looking into now, might be a way forward in Britain. So there's a whole lot of things. It's all, the scale of it is all coming down. If you look at what the state's doing, for example, the EU, are plowing huge sums of money into uh, an attempt to get fusion power to work on a massive scale. They think in terms of billions of investment, huge risks, very low chance of return. This actually is one of the areas where the private sector is already starting to make massive inroads beyond where the the big government-funded research projects have gone. So there's small private sector companies making massive progress in the area of fusion energy for, for and they're, they're aiming, I think, mainly at small modular reactors, a bit like Rolls-Royce is building, although they're using uh, fission, but still they're, they're, you know, they're aiming at a particular scale, a particular size for local power generation, as you say. I mean, they're, they're, they're well-funded uh, research and development companies looking at fusion research. When I say well-funded, it's a fraction of what the ITER and other big uh, research projects have got, and they're doing spectacularly well. Yes, and and there's a there's a process there where success will be rewarded and reinforced, and resources will follow the success. Whereas the governmental system, resources will follow the political zeitgeist of the time, and success has got nothing to do with it. And very often, the response to failure is to increase investment. We're just not spending enough. So we're talking there about how much you build. You take that on a British level. It's a relatively small island. We have a situation where we've all discovered via government policy uh, that information technology has actually gone a lot further than anyone had thought. The idea that we all have to transport ourselves into an office, into a working environment in the city all the time, to study in a university building, to study in a school building, rather than being at home or anywhere else that we happen to want to be, is actually outdated. Now, the roads are subsidised by the taxpayer and are unpleasant to be on, but there's no tolls, so there's no price system that says, well, at certain times it costs more or anything like that. So they're, they're swamped with traffic at times, they're unpleasant, they don't work. But what would the free market solution to that be? It might be more roads. It might be. It might be the roads get more expensive and people find other ways. The point is, with a state centrally controlled system making those decisions, those questions will never be answered. Instead, we've got people putting forward a desire for bicycle lanes. So the roads are being used for bicycle lanes. A big problem in London is a lot of the, the traffic capacity is being devoted to bicycles. That's a political decision for reasons which are never even shared properly with us. Why, why is it anti-car and pro-bike? But it is. That's a political decision. And that's the way they're going to push it. Why? It's, it's, it's not a response to the marketplace. It's a response to political imperatives, political wishes, 
which are at best obscure in their origin. Yes, because the marketplace is represented by the actions of individuals. Yes, but the market... And, and individuals want to drive cars, mainly. Yes, perhaps. But again, remember that the, the, the pricing of the road and the pricing of the fuel and the pricing of the car is entirely centrally controlled. So individuals are choosing to drive cars under, set, under a set of circumstances which are not free market circumstances, they're government-dictated circumstances. Uh, in, for example, when, when mass car ownership took off, uh, Glasgow and the, the west part of Scotland had the largest electrified tram network in the world. It went, it went from Airdrie to Helensborough, and it was fully integrated, and it was all taken apart to make way for the motor car. And that was, that was a, a government decision that, once again? That was a government decision, yes. That was a government decision. The car's the thing. So we locked down large parts of cities to put motorways through them. We locked down some very, very pretty parts of Glasgow to put motorways through them. Yeah. And then a generation, or maybe even less later, uh, that's not such a good move. Now, had, had that all been private sector, would that have happened? I suspect we would have be somewhere quite different. And it's, it's the missed opportunities as much as anything else. So you, someone buys, some, some politician says, we're going to build a bridge. Right? We're going to build a bridge, for example, between Scotland and Ireland, right? something which for, entirely for geopolitical reasons, I think there's, there's a case to be made for that. But he said, so Boris comes and says, we're going to build a big, beautiful, the, the Boris Bridge. Fine. And he builds a bridge and the, the bridge is magnificent. We use the bridge. And there's going to be benefits to the bridge, but there's going to be people paying for the bridge, right? One of, one of which will be you. So some part of your future taxation, the money that's taken off you, will pay for that bridge. Now, because that money's taken off you, you might not go down to your local tailor and get yourself a nice tailored suit or buy a custom-made guitar from someone or whatever you actually want to do with your resources. So not only is your life made a bit duller, but the, the, the tailor who would have made that suit or the craftsman who have made, made the guitar, he didn't get the order, so he's been made poorer. And, and on it goes. So you can see the benefit from the bridge. You can even, to some extent, maybe see the secondary economic benefit from the extra trade going across the bridge. What you can never see are all the things, all the opportunities, all the ideas destroyed by the taxation, all the things not brought to market, all the solutions not generated because the resources have been taxed away or because the imposition of a particular solution made the, enough of the problem disappear that, that, that the incentive wasn't there to solve it in another way, which might have been much more economically viable. So uh, going back to your point then about how do we know what to build and so on, and you said that if it was left to the private sector, there would be an economic calculation made and a decision would be made based on that economic calculation. And you also said that governments don't do that properly. Um, now, in, in the case of the bridge between Scotland and Northern Ireland, anybody that is in any way familiar with the geology of that particular crossing, no matter which of the two main routes that, that has been discussed, will know very well the massive challenges that there would be in building such a bridge. Massive challenges. And I would struggle, even without doing any kind of economic evaluation of that, I would struggle on the face of it to imagine that it's possible 
that generate the economic return from from trade between Northern Ireland and, and Scotland, or tra- or even trade between Ireland as a whole and Scotland. I would struggle to see the economic case for that. But let's assume there is. Let's assume it become it it were to become a massive driver for economic activity on both sides of the North Channel. Your your concern that you've expressed there is that by by making that decision and spending that money and then taxing that money back that that pulls energy out of the economy which might be deployed in other ways which might be more productive at the end of the day but surely that is a a calculation that is done before you start it let's assume for suspend or disbelief for a second and assume that there was actually a proper economic evaluation done in the first place then that question of would we be sucking the energy out of the economy on a long-term term basis must be part of that calculation. I, I, don't believe, I don't believe that it is, though. No, 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 no. I'm just I'm saying suspend your disbelief for a second. So, so let's assume that that evaluation was all done properly, and let's assume that the conclusions that were drawn were that this is an investment worth making, despite the technical challenges in getting across the North Channel, that, there, that this is going to uh, spawn an, an economy which is going to generate such returns that it makes it vi- uh, economically viable, then surely under those circumstances, if the calculation has been done right, you're not going to be taxing to, to a degree that's going to suck a massive amount of energy out of the economy because the economy is going to be burgeoning to such a degree that that isn't going to uh, suffer massively from, from repayment of that debt. Now, I take your point about the the fact that governments don't do these economic calculations properly in the first place but if something changed and they were done properly in the first place then then we're not going to, to we're not getting ourselves in a situation where the tax burden is such that it does as you as you fear suck the energy out of private enterprise how would that calculation ever be done but this is this is what I'm trying to get to because cal- these calculations have been done in the past by the private sector. So why, in principle, is there is there no reason that a government could do that? The difference is coercion. If the private sector was able to say, "Well, well, you can have a monopoly on the use of violence, and you can force people to have your products and force people to pay for your products, whether they want them or not." Then the problem of of uh, that we're seeing in government would be manifest just as just as quickly, if not more so, in the private sector. the The difference is the the difference between voluntary free exchange and coerced taxation, and the the two are are quite are quite significantly different because one's based on the threat of violence and one's one's based on people agreeing that that would that will better their lives. And uh, they're voluntarily going into an agreement. I mean, look, look at, uh, for example, the problem with uh, the pension funds not having anything to invest in that's, that's, that's worth anything. Pension funds used to be based on government bonds and some stocks and shares, right? And the government bonds gave you allegedly uh, security, and the stocks and shares gave you a bit of growth, and you maybe had some blue chip bonds and the rest of it. So the, the pension company would get seven to eight percent a year. And they would run their organisation on that, and they'd, they'd they'd put enough away for for pensions. None none of that's true now. There's nowhere that's risk free for for all this this investment to go in. They're not investing in infrastructure that's that's got a payback and is an asset that's going to be there, because that's all done by the government. That's all done by the government via coercive taxation, 
and not having to make a return. The government's calculation on this is entirely different. It's about not only political incentive, not economic incentive. It's also about short-term political incentive because one of the one of the tragedies of of the system we call democracy is that it's based on there not being a, a privileged class, a privileged person, like a prince or a king, who essentially owns the country and passes it down to his heirs and it's instead based on politicians who have a loan of the asset for for the length of their tenure. And at the end of that, they have to give up their privileged position to somebody else. Now, the problem is that the political democratic solution generates even more short-termism because the king's quite likely to want to build up the country and leave it in a better state to his son and heir. The politician doesn't care past the next election cycle. We see this all the time. So we're going to goose the, we're going to try and goose the economy up to make everyone feel good so he can get another or she can get another five years in power. And they go for it every single time. So you're not just making decisions not on the long-term economic interest of the country. You're making it, not, it's no longer the economic interest. It's made on the political interest of the ruling class. And it's made on the short-term political interest with, if you're lucky, a five-year horizon, probably more like 18 months, beyond which they don't care. And I, I would argue that the sort of decisions we're seeing coming out of the Johnson administration just now are, are those sorts of decisions. It's, it's short-term, it's faddish, and it's to get them through the next you know, year or two. And, and when it was the Blair administration, it would, it would be the next day or two sometimes. It was very short term. But, but is that right? What we seem to be seeing is the effects of Dominic Cummings. And he certainly hasn't been talking about this type of thing as a short-term solution to political success. He has been talking about long-term development. Correct, he has. And that, that in some ways has been a breath of fresh air. But it remains to be seen whether he can actually get anywhere. He's trying to solve these problems by political means, and is that even possible? I mean, time will tell. His, his analysis of actually needing a, a longer-term governing strategy uh, and to get away from this, he was quite explicit about this, Cummings was very explicit about this, that, that it's necessary to get away from a policy which is set by what's, what's going to work in that week's news cycle, which had been the 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 situation when he took over with Gove at the Department of uh, Education. That's that's how they ran it. It was just from one catastrophe to the next on a week by week basis, and and he was determined that rightly that that had to be stopped. My question is: Does a government centralised system make stopping that even possible? That is a good question. But look, we're we're pretty much out of time for this program. So let me just try to summarize here. If I take everything that you've said uh, and, and put it all together, what it seems to boil down to is that our problems here then are not economic because at the end of the day, economies are going to function to some degree uh, no matter what happens. But our problems are fundamentally government problems, political problems, constitutional problems. And so actually, in order to solve our economic problems, we've got to look in the, look to those areas first. The economic system, if it's allowed to run, is very robust. 
it needs certain things. It needs uh, security of contract. It needs secure property rights. It needs a lack of theft, and I would include taxation in that. And it needs a situation where it's not completely curtailed by centralised bureaucracy making regulations, because that becomes eventually, at the extreme end of the regulatory state, you, you get the fascist and indeed the Nazi regime, which has been called the vampire economy. Um, and they, they said things which we're starting to hear again, um, certainly in Scotland, which is um, you're, we're quite happy for you to have your privately owned asset. We don't have a problem with that, providing you use it to the greater good of the people as a whole, which we will define. And if you don't, then uh, you're going to have to lose that and we'll take it into other forms of ownership. So you have the effective loss of property rights, um, if not the nominal loss of them, and uh, a different means of uh, the state controlling the means of production and the asset base. And under those circumstances, you can only have failure. So you've got this very robust system, which will reestablish itself very quickly. But the controls and the misallocation of resources that comes via that state control have to be stopped. So, you know, first, first, if we're in a hole, stop digging is what I would suggest we should be doing. And I, I don't see anyone looking to stop digging. I only see people trying to dig a little more intelligently. You know, and while that is a good thing, I don't think that holds within it the possibility of uh, the sort of transformation we need to see. That same mentality uh, was seen by actually Michael Gove when he, when he was talking about what was going to happen with farming in this country following Brexit. Uh, of course, uh, it wasn't a case of, well, uh, we're repatriating all this money that we used to put into the common agricultural policy, so we're going to use that to help uh, develop the farming industry in this country. No, it was uh, this money will only be available to you as farmers if you do things for the public good. Uh, and the public good is, provided, is, is defined by government uh, and, and, in fact, not even by the British government because the public good in this case is globalist United Nations Agenda 2030 policy, uh, which is all about rewilding and, in fact, paying farmers to destroy what has been built up over dozens of generations. Yeah. So we're going to do what to farmers what we did to the electric trams in Glasgow, and then we're going to regret the loss of the asset once it's once it's too late. This seems to be the pattern with state involvement. The claim that this is in some way conservative and or free market, I cannot see anything that conserves um, assets or anything that's free market in it. It's simply a different bra- a different branding and packaging of the same old answer to the question, which is, what do we need? Well, we need more government. Okay, well, look, uh, thank you very much, as I say, for that. Now, let's uh, look to next week. Um, And your third question uh, from last week was, how are we going to pay for it? If we're going to build uh, infrastructure, how are we going to pay for it? Now, this brings us on to uh, a whole raft of very interesting topics. Uh, The availability of credit. What kind of credit is available? Does that become government credit? Uh, does that come from government? And uh, this really starts to get us into the subject of the magic money tree and whether there is such a thing, David. So um, I think next week we'll have a go at, uh, well, we'll start the conversation at least about how 
we might pay for things. Um, and uh, that takes us into some quite controversial areas. It does, and it takes, takes us into areas which are genuinely mysterious in, in, uh, when you get into how, how banking works and uh, how money is created and th- the problems come from it. So, yes, we'll uh, go into those muddy waters and uh, see where we go. Absolutely. Okay, thank you very much for joining me then tonight, David, and uh, uh, we will speak again in a week.